Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHESS, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHESS podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHESS podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really terrific discussion on smoking cessation and lung cancer screening. We're very fortunate to have Dr. Triplett as our guest, and we'll be discussing his article entitled, Provision of Smoking Cessation Resources in the Context of In-Person Shared Decision-Making for Lung Cancer Screening. And we'll also discuss the accompanying editorial by Dr. Zelliot. So, uh, Matt and Stephen, thank you both for joining us. I'll ask you each to introduce yourself. Uh, first, Matt. Sure, yeah. So, uh, Matthew Triplett. I am a pulmonologist and clinical researcher and assistant professor at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, as well as the University of Washington. And I run our lung cancer screening program here and our comprehensive smoking cessation program. And Stephen? Um, I'm Steve Zelliot, and I am a professor in the Health Services Department in the School of Public Health at the University of Washington, so down the hall, I guess, or across the campus from Matt. And I'm also the Associate Director for the uh, Seattle Center of Innovation in the VA. It's one of 19 centers that focus on how to improve health care for veterans. I'm a health economist and a health services researcher. An absolute pleasure to have both of you on the podcast with us. So um, maybe, Stephen, you can set the stage for us. Um, what is shared decision-making, and why is it so important uh, in the context of lung cancer screening and smoking cessation? Well, shared decision-making for lung cancer screening is because there's some harms to screening and some benefits, and so making sure that patients understand, you know, the trade-offs, the potential trade-offs. And talking about smoking cessation in that context is, it's really important for patients who are continuing to who are continuing to smoke. So lung cancer screening may be offered to patients who are former smokers, but many patients are current smokers. And so really talking to them and engaging them about their smoking behaviors and what it means to participate in lung cancer screening is um, important. And it, smoking cessation is one of those, I like to call it like a rare unicorn in healthcare. So it's incredibly value in changing health outcomes. So, and it's, you know, highly cost-efficient, cost-effective even, so, which is why it's one of those rare unicorns. So it's really important to kind of integrate that into the lung cancer screening process. So, so maybe you could go, I mean, to most of our audience, the benefits of smoking cessation, you know, decrease further smoking complications, uh, the economy of it. But what would the risks of smoking cessation be? The risk of smoking cessation, there are there are not that many risks of smoking cessation. So, I mean, there's sort of the, you know, quitting is hard and, and it's sort of frustrating and challenging, but there's very few downsides to actually, you know, quitting smoking or even trying to quit smoking. And what does the process of shared decision-making include and what smoking cessation resources are available uh, to folks who want to stop smoking? Well, the two evidence-based practices for smoking cessation are behavioral counseling, um, and that takes a lot of different forms, and then tobacco treatment through medications. And usually there's nicotine replacement or Chantix, um, which have different mechanisms. Um, bupropion is also potentially used. And so combining 
you know, treatment with medications with counseling is sort of the gold standard and is what has been shown to be the most effective in terms of helping patients actually quit smoking. Um, and so figuring out how to integrate discussion around smoking cessation into that process of lung cancer screening is, I think, the focus of um, Dr. Triplett's paper and what's really happening in the field. So, Matt, I want to pull you into this discussion. Um, maybe you could give us a little bit of an overview as to the motivation and rationale for your study. And maybe you could just set in context first, what are the current guidelines on smoking cessation and are there any government uh, mandates for smoking cessation in lung cancer screening? Sure. Um, so, I think um, Steve really summarized um, how important that um, smoking cessation is in the context of lung cancer screening. I mean, we know that about 50% of the current patients that are eligible for lung cancer screening across the United States and enrolling in these screening programs are current smokers. So, you know, we consider this a potentially very valuable teaching opportunity to combine the benefits of not just lung cancer screening and early detection, but to help patients with cessation, which we know has broad health impacts far beyond lung cancer and lung cancer mortality itself. So I think in general, my research program um, has been a lot uh, uh, about the implementation of lung cancer screening. And I think overall, uh, I think it'd be safe to say that implementation has been poor on a number of levels across the screening care continuum. And I think in some ways that's to be expected. This is a relatively new service, um, kind of the newest guideline-driven cancer preventive service. Um, and so throughout my research program, I look at the various aspects of implementation from enrollment to screening, aspects of um, adherence to screening and follow-up to care. Um, but I think what motivated this was really an interest in, in, um, in seeing how well um, providers and then subsequently patients were integrating that, the most low-hanging fruit of the lung cancer screening process, which is really getting people to enroll in and engage in tobacco cessation. So that was really my motivation and I think we know from other settings that smoking cessation is not really um, often well integrated into primary care. Um, but I was very interested in this particular moment, which should really prompt uh, a heavy discussion about um, smoking cessation. So that was relation. My cohort is limited to 2015 to 2018 for the particular reason that there has been a government mandate for um, smoking cessation within the context of lung cancer screening. So that's provided by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services Guidelines, which essentially inform um, providers who take care of patients um, covered by Medicare and in most um, states, Medicaid follows these guidelines as well, um, that in order to get paid essentially for the shared decision-making process for visits around initiating lung cancer screening that they need to document and provide some amount of smoking cessation. So that was another um, motivation was to say, listen, this has actually been mandated within this context, but how well are people actually um, doing this? And then in terms of the um, study methods, uh, what did you uh, do for your study and what were the limitations that were addressed of previous studies? Sure. So I, I think one of the, 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 the interesting things about working in the field of implementation of lung cancer screening is there aren't that many previous studies, particularly within this context. But I think we know from the primary care literature that smoking cessation may be addressed in about 70% of the visits um, uh, across a year of, 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 of a patient's um, visits who are current smokers. So 
that's just addressing smoking cessation. That's not really providing the resources. And then if you look at studies where they actually provide resources, it, it, it's not, you know, incredibly common, even with serial visits with a primary care provider, for them to actually provide the gold standard of care, as Steve said, doing counseling and, and um, medication, either through nicotine or pharmacologic therapy. Um, in terms of... Um, and and so I felt that, um, you know, no one had really addressed how well this was being done in the context of lung cancer screening. Um, I was interested in using my cohort of, of patients, but I think we have a very representative um, lung cancer screening program. We have a multi-site program that spans a number of primary care clinics throughout Seattle, includes a large um, population that faces um, uh, various care, low socioeconomic status patients, kind of a, a diverse patient population. So essentially, and we center and we centralize that process so that we have kind of central oversight and then a large database uh, to collect data on these patients. So um, I essentially looked at the cohort of patients um, that had undergone screening from 2015 to 2018 at our program and looked at that roughly 50% that was current smokers that had not been provided smoking cessation resources within the past year and then had their initial um, shared decision-making visit to discuss initiating lung cancer screening and looked at what resources were provided based on that that visit, um, doing a mix of, of chart review, looking at the ICD-9 codes, um, looking very uh, granularly at the, um, the note itself and then the outcomes that came from it. So, uh, larger retrospective analysis. So, let's go through your key findings and how you interpreted them, uh, Matt. Sure. Um, so, uh, you know, I think um, the the um, the most important finding was really that uh, we 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 looked at different smoking cessation resources. Um, and define them essentially as, as um, either counseling-based resources, referrals to counseling-based care, or um, referrals or prescriptions for medication. Um, and then we also looked at the various elements that might be documented within the notes, such as documentation consistent with having a shared decision-making process or documentation of discussion of tobacco. And when we look at the highest level, folks that got both counseling referrals and medication that came out of this, um, this encounter, only 5% of participants received both of those kind of gold standard. And if we look at um, any smoking cessation resource that, that came out of this initial shared decision-making visit, that was 39% of participants. So to be honest, that was a bit higher than, um, than our hypothesis that we considered that kind of moderate levels of, of smoking cessation resources because I think we had kind of low expectations coming into this. Um, the other interesting finding um, that is not, not as novel, but but, um, but in line with other research, is that really only 26% of the encounters even had elements of shared decision making. And I think, regardless of how you look at this, whether it's documentation, shared decision making, or or studies actually looked at recording primary care visits during a quote unquote shared decision making visit, people are not really doing the kind of shared decision making. What Steve talked about, the risk benefits of lung cancer screening. Um, so people are, have not really been maximizing that or, or applying that process in the lung cancer screening screening process. So I, I think overall we said that there's a moderate provision of smoking cessation resources, but really low provision of what would be considered the gold standard 
um, counseling referrals and medication that come out of uh, a lung cancer screening shared decision-making visit. So, Steve, you had the opportunity to review this paper. Um, what struck you as the key findings, and how did you interpret them? Well, I find this paper to be really fascinating and interesting, and I think um, the, the the low use of tobacco treatment and the low use of Goldfinger treatment and the low use of providing medications was interesting. Um, and as and, and, he, and Matt talked about that. One of the things that's really fascinating, and I think this goes back to the CMS requirement, is that there is a hard stop in this medical record that they were able to review, and it says, you know, patients or the providers can't get on to the to the next phase. I think of ordering lung cancer screening test unless they answer this question. You know, did you provide smoking cessation to the patient? Yes or no. And it's surprising to me, it's shocking to me that patients. Um, or providers would even say no to that, like that they would actually say no, and that happened about 30% of the time. And so I'm kind of curious as to what that electronic order set really looks like and, and how how providers are able to, you know, acknowledge that they have a smoker sitting there in front of them and that they're not actually providing tobacco treatment or, or even smoking cessation counseling. Um, so, and, and I think that is very interesting in terms of how to interpret what, sort of the Medicare requirement really means that that t- tobacco treatment is, is provided in the context of the shared decision-making visit. Um, and then, you know, this paper really highlights, like, what happens. So patients are, are, are they provided with real treatment or not? And I think this is starting to not understand just is it provided, but sort of the quality of how tobacco treatment is provided. So it's it's great work. It's really fascinating and I think really important to kind of help us understand what how to do this. So, Matt, uh, Steve raises a, n- a number of important issues, and it's one that really struck me, this issue of, you know, why are providers not uh, performing a task which uh, is essentially government-mandated and would actually benefit the patient? What did you um, think of that, and uh, what do you think are there any barriers uh, that the physicians are encountering um, with any limitations in your study that maybe they are doing it, but it's not being reported? Um, how did you uh, address that issue? Yeah, I think I think that's a great question. Um, and just to address um, Steve's point, <clears throat> you know, I think a limitation of prior data is is um, when you look at large, um, uh, you know, a help maybe a health services large data approach to this question, you do find, as Steve said, nearly everyone is saying that they're providing sensation, and part of that is because all lung cancer screening cohorts, or at least the majority that are not VA-based, are reported to the American College of Radiology's registry. And one of their registry fields is um, whether tobacco cessation is provided to the patient. And that kind of data is imported from these kind of yes-no hard stops. And across the regions of the United States, it's all upwards of 80% that it's provided. So that would be the health services approach. But I think the reason you know, I think this paper reveals that when you look at the on-the-ground granular, was anything really provided, I think um, that number is much, much lower. So that kind of is an advantage of the approach that we took. Um, In terms of um, kind of what are the particular barriers of why that's not happening, I mean, I think some of it um, I discussed in the paper are, are the barriers to general preventive services in the United States. So I think around one-third of all recommended services for any given patient are provided within a year by a primary care provider. And so I think the barriers to smoking cessation are not unique to these other preventive services. 
um, in that providers face a number of, of time-based barriers, um, resources. And I think smoking cessation adds other major issues. I think it's difficult to discuss smoking cessation with patients. I think primary care providers are often feel like they might be in an uncomfortable, difficult position to keep reiterating a smoking cessation message. I think that's easier for me as a lung doctor to, to say, I'm going to talk about your smoking. They're here to see a specialist. But I think that can be very difficult for primary care providers. And I think smoking cessation is more time intensive, particularly than other um, preventive services. So referring a patient for mammogram might be a much uh, more uh, easy to accomplish task than saying, hey, today, despite the fact that you have a number of comorbidities that I want to discuss, we are going to spend some time on your smoking cessation. I'm going to talk to you about the therapies and other things. Um, One interesting thing in kind of the analysis that we looked at was were there differences in providing those resources um, in different patient groups? And what we found was you were likely to get these smoking cessation resources if you had a lower comorbidity score. Um, And I think, you know, that's one of those interesting paradoxes that I often find in some of my research that the people that might benefit the most, people with other comorbidities where smoking cessation may have a great impact on their health overall, are the least likely to get the resources. And to me, that speaks to to the competing the competing issues that are likely uh, primary care providers likely to face when a office visit with that patient because they have diabetes and they have other issues that the provider is trying to to address. Um, I think the final question you asked was about, you know, what are the limitations? You know, I think um, essentially, I think regarding conversations around lung cancers or conversations around smoking cessation in this visit, that certainly could be higher, right? We don't know that all those conversations are going to be documented per se, but I think we were pretty comprehensive in seeing any resources that could have come out of this because then then we looked at all the orders, all the ICD-9 codes that came out of these visits, um, and we also looked in kind of a subset analysis that I don't think ended up in the paper, but but whether these people then got smoking cessation prescriptions within six months, 12 months after the visit, it didn't, didn't really seem to happen. So I think Granular resources seems like were pretty low, but that there may have been more counseling than what than was captured by the kind of chart review methods that we use. Steve, what's your response to that? Well, I think it just highlights this is, I mean, lung cancer screening is already expensive, and adding on tobacco treatment or the time to actually do it is sort of a mar- very marginally small added extra component. And so I think we just you know, this just highlights we need to figure out how to do this. We need to kind of figure out how to design and bake in tobacco treatment into this process. And that our attempts to kind of add it on in primary care um, are are failing, are just not working. And, I mean, a couple of some, some in the editorial, some of the work around this is that we could spend up to $1,200, um, you know, on tobacco treatment for, per patient every time we find them. And, and it would still be cost-effective. We'd still get benefit from it. And so why we are not able to squeeze that extra, you know, time to talk to patients is really shocking in some way. Um, and, I, and I think one of the things that's hard is that there's this mindset of behavior change that we've been, it's been baked into us or baked into primary care around finding and treating patients at the stage of change where they're at. So this model of pre-contemplation, contemplation, action, and maintenance. And in the smoking world, this has been kind of 
codified in terms of we're not going to provide medications until patients are willing to set a quit date. And that's, you know, I think that's outdated. I think in this context, um, patients who are are participating in lung cancer screening, maybe they're not exactly willing to set a quit date, but they're engaging in a behavior kind of either consciously or subconsciously wondering if, you know, their smoking behavior is associated with um, the potential of cancer. And so figuring out a way to connect them with tobacco treatment, um, you know, providers just sending them home with medications just in case, you know, they decide they want to try it or just so they have it on hand. Um, is, I think, where we need to be going with this. We just need to really think about the design and realize that, you know, having a hard stop in the medical record and hoping that it gets done um, is is just not happening. So, so how do you, uh, Matt, I want to pull you into this. Uh, how do you evaluate whether your patient's ready to stop uh, uh, smoking? I mean, I mean, there's a lot of other factors that go into it, like, you know, is there someone else at home that's smoking who uh, may still be smoking when this person is trying to quit? Are there any stresses at home? How do you go about your smoking cessation program to ensure that this patient's really going to be able to be successful? And as you've described, it, it looks like success rates are pretty low uh, regardless. Yeah, I, and I think, um, you know, I think this goes back to to Steve's point in that I, I think we as providers we we sometimes are um, are uh, best equipped to provide these smoking cessation resources because we treat disease when people are ready to to get to them and that would be you know at at least kind of a contemplative stage and then when patients are not at that stage it becomes much harder to check back in with them and reassess because that's multiple. And you're like, oh, you know, this patient doesn't seem like they're going to quit. And I think that's part of the reason why we fail. And I know Steve could speak to this. I know he's looking at a, an intervention right now that has more more elements of, you know, yes, you're enrolled in lung cancer screening, you're pre-contemplative, let's check back in. I, I will tell you what we do is, um, and some of it is based on, on this research, is we're really starting to move toward an opt-out system um, in our centralized program where we have a tobacco treatment specialist call the patient, introduce themselves, discuss the resources, but in a very low-pressure way, they say, hey, you know, I'm here. It's great you're enrolled in lung screening. We don't have to set quit dates right now. We don't have to talk about medications. But let me just tell you the resources that we have um, and any that might be of interest to you we can, can think about or we can just set a time to check back in. And I, I think that's where our allied providers might do a much, much better job than, than a primary care doctor. We literally do have people trained in tobacco treatment, and I think that's where primary care kind of fails. If you're not ready to quit yet, we kind of back away and say, okay, well, we'll do the screening and not really address the smoking cessation. So I think, you know, to get to Steve's point, and, 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 and he can speak on this more, uh, and, and the whole point of, of these multi-center trials, like the scale network is really to say, well, how, how best are we going to deliver service the, the heterogeneous mix of patients, 50% of which are current smokers, few of which may want to quit right now, but how do we continue to address smoking cessation? Because lung cancer screening is a longitudinal process, right? People can be eligible um, in the new guidelines for up to 30 years. And so we, we should have multiple points at which we can capture people who smoke, and we know that their, um, their contemplation around quitting may wax and wane and, and change over that time that they're in the screen. Steve, your response? 
Yeah, I think that we are in the beginning of trying to design, you know, the way that this should happen. So, um, and figure out what it, you know, what the messages are, what the counseling procedures are, what the timing is of how to really engage patients, um, and and treat them, you know, as as whole patients. So sort of like understanding that they're taking this action, this sort of positive action to to get to participate in cancer screening, um, make sure they're getting other cancer screening as well. So not just lung cancer screening, if they're, you know, late for their colonoscopy, there's an opportunity to, to talk to them about that as well. Um, but really figure out how to um, think through with patients everything that's going on about quitting and what, you know, behavior change and, and not just sort of, you know, you know, bring it up the way we traditionally do and say, are you ready to quit? Um, okay, I guess not. Let's move on um, and just get this test ordered so you can go in and get it done. So it's, there's, there's, a, there's a lot to this, and I, and I think that um, you know, medications and, and treatment has, have a big role, and we've been gatekeepers in some way around that, and I think changing um, our approach to, to that is important, and patients should kind of acknowledge or, or know that um, these medications are available for them and encourage patients to try them and, and, and not be as um, you know, gatekeeper-y, I don't know if that's quite a word, as, as we have been. And I think that the evidence that, that when we've moved to that in other settings outside of lung cancer screening, sort of just general primary care settings or even patients who are newly diagnosed with uh, with cancer, not necessarily lung cancer, but the cancer centers are sort of like, I'm going to give you some medications for helping you quit, treatment, um, quit tobacco treatment just in case you want to try. Um, patients use them more. They don't always use them. It's not 100% the, the, you know, the uptake, but um, it, it's, a, it's a barrier that we've, you know, we've created this barrier and we need to work on it a little bit. So, and I, and I think that the, this design element of like how we really, you know, embed this in is important. So if it's, you know, should it be part of this primary care shared decision-making visit um, is important to, to, to think about. And if, you know, what's, what are we trying to get across during that shared decision-making visit around lung cancer screening? Um, if this needs to be a completely different, you know, activity, how it happens, is it, you know, in person, is it over the phone? Is it, um, you know, there's all kinds of different, different mechanisms for doing this, but, but the, the excuse of we don't have time is something that we shouldn't be hearing ever around this. Like we should find time for tobacco treatment. It's just really, really important. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Uh, and Steve, I wanted to ask you, you had mentioned that you're involved in health economics. So maybe you could discuss maybe the, the economics of doing this, you know, how many uh, lives or, or how much money do you have to spend in order to get someone to stop smoking uh, and, you know, the benefits of it? So you can spend a lot of money on tobacco treatment. So a lot of money, I mean, and a lot of the work that's gone into this is sort of just the, the process that lung cancer screening already does, which is just identifying the smoker. So kind of building registries of current tobacco users um, and then spending a lot of time with in-person counseling and outreach. Um, some, some work shows that you can spend up to $1,200 um, per patient to try and, you know, every year to try and, you know, con- and connect them with tobacco treatment, and that still will pay for itself um, because 
it's so effective in the long run. Um, and, you know, there's been an estimate that just adding tobacco treatment into the already large cost of lung cancer screening um, adds less than a quarter, could would add less than a quarter of a percent to the total cost of the whole um, enterprise. And so understanding that, it's sort of like it's shocking that, um, you know, medical center directors and the, the, the people with the purse strings aren't, you know, asking for, you know, Matt and other programs to just add more time for tobacco treatment. Um, they really should. They should pay attention and add more time to this. It's, it pays for itself. So, Matt, what barriers have you encountered? I mean, it would seem as though for, an inst- for institutions to go about smoking cessation would be highly beneficial from a patient point of view, from an economic point of view. What barriers have you encountered um, as the lead for your lung cancer screening program? Yeah, and I mean, I think this is interesting but when you Think about how the, the economics kind of add up. I, I will say that um, before I took over as the program director, I was involved a bit in kind of expanding our, our um, lung cancer program or lung cancer screening program. And what I can tell you is, if people are really interested in the downstream impacts on a health center, um, and in our case, it's kind of you know looking at lung cancer screening. It's looking at how many lung cancers are diagnosed and whether they get their treatment at our center, right? Because that is where the de- the the back end is where, um, there are you, you know you actually as a health center make a lot of money um, on patients that are diagnosed with lung cancer, folks that um, are detected early and need surgery, or folks that are detected late and, and need a number of systemic therapies or other things. So that is kind of how you approach a health center with an economic model, how many cases of lung cancer are we going to diagnose if we expand the program, and then what are the downstream revenues? And I think that's where smoking cessation, it's hard to know where that comes in for people that that think about it that way, right? Um, Because there's not going to be um, new things that are diagnosed by doing smoking cessation, or um, our providers don't make a lot of money on doing smoking cessation. Um, I will say we have a little bit of a different economic model at the of Cancer Center that that has finally gotten folks really on board with smoking cessation, and part of it's because we're now funded by the NCI as a um, as a cancer moonshot competence and cessation center, um, and, and that's really saying we have a number of cancer patients who who smoke, and if we provide cessation to those cancer patients, their treatment outcomes are better, their um, life expectancy is better, their ability to tolerate treatment. Um, is better, and so that has gotten a lot of folks on board with the patient or cancer patients. We have kind of leveraged that and used that to say, well, let's also extend that to the screening patients. These folks are going to be part of our program for a number of years. We are going to improve their cancer screening outcomes, um, whether that be avoiding a cancer diagnosis or um, improving their health overall and their eligibility for screening by by um, really working on cessation. So I think it's tough unless you unless you work uh, in a program like a Kaiser um, program where keeping your patients healthy is a priority. It is really hard to to get a, a create an economic model um, for a center that makes smoking cessation really adds anything to the profit of the center. Steve, what's your response to that? And then I also wanted to ask you, um, it appears that there is a government mandate, but that folks aren't following it, despite there being a mandate. Would you change anything to the mandate about uh, smoking cessation? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, 
CMS, you know, does really want to encourage smoking cessation. It's just hard. Um, and I think that, you know, the requirement that it happens is the, is the first step. I mean, I think this paper and I think this, this research that, that, um, Matt has done is really, really interesting because it kind of just highlights how hard it is. The documentation of it is one thing, but actually doing it is another. Um, and I, and I think we just need to figure out ways to really incentivize, you know, patients. Maybe, you know, tobacco treatment should be a quality measure that we bake into lung cancer screening. And if patients are only, you know, if less than half of your patients um, are, you know, your current smokers are actually really provided with high-quality um, tobacco treatment, then that's a failure, you know, a quality failure of the lung cancer screening program. Um, and, you know, maybe we should look, you know, we have the opportunity to look over time and see how many of these patients come back over 30 years and quit smoking over that period. And if if the programs can't help some of those patients quit smoking, um, I don't know what the right rate is. And quitting smoking is really, really challenging, but it shouldn't be zero. Uh, we shouldn't encourage people or not encourage people to quit smoking. Um, so it just needs to be one of the things that we think about in designing these programs and really try to put resources towards that. I mean, and I think, you know, that highlights that it is, it is challenging to, you know, this is one of the reasons, you know, smoking cessation doesn't make money for healthcare systems. Um, it, it prevents, you know, downstream consequences, but it doesn't lead to, you know, procedures and procedures make money. So it's, it's, uh, it's a challenge and we just need to keep working on it. We can't not keep working on it. So, so Matt, I'm going to throw you probably a really tough question here. I mean, so Steve brings up the issue of, you know, reimbursement for physicians and maybe they're not doing the right thing for the patient because they don't have an incentive to do it. How would you revise that system um, to ensure that patients actually get the best care that they should? Wow, that's a tough question. I mean, I think that my poor primary care colleagues are faced with a number of quality metrics. I think Steve pointed out, I mean, that's been shown to be effective in a number of settings, right, particularly where um, the quality is a little easier to measure. I'm thinking about, you know, the percentage of your patients with a hemoglobin A1C um, below a certain value among your diabetics in your panel. And I think those things were, those quality-based measures were kind of, celebrated and touted within the last um, 10 years. I think it becomes harder for smoking cessation because as we've all talked about, what what is the right number, right? Um, and I think we don't know, you know, you can offer every patient treatment and depending on your panel, the likelihood that, you know, any of your smokers may quit within a year, is that is that 20%, is that 30%? What's the right number to put on that kind of quality metric? Um, but I think... Kind of trying to figure that out maybe a good thing, and so I, I think um, you know those quality-based metrics could be could be really helpful to at least address it. I, I think taking some things away from primary care, right? That's the problem that is we're talking about a very resource-strained um, um, group of physicians. So I, I even think having you know particularly in these bigger health systems, I'll say I run the only tobacco cessation program across a multi-site. Um, program and it really is only for patients in lung cancer screening or cancer um, or cancer patients um, and, and that's the only access people really have to an in-person tobacco treatment specialist like you know if you could really fit one of those folks that are not that expensive for a health system to pay for 
assign a tobacco treatment specialist to a cluster of six or seven primary care clinics and just kind of have opt-out points of contact, you know, for primary care patients that are that are documented to be current smokers. I mean, I think that may alleviate some of the burden um, and the outcomes would be, you know, incredible, regardless of what that, that rate is of the current smokers. Any, any smoker within a primary care clinic that quits, you know, within that year period of time, that would, that would have a major effect um, on, on their health um, outcomes down the line. So um, those are just a few of my thoughts. Yeah, it's a really a tough question and uh, a lot of challenges that we're going to have in the upcoming years. Um, Steve and Matt, uh, you, you've been very gracious with your time. And uh, as we draw to the end of the podcast, I do want to give each of you the opportunity to leave us with any uh, concluding remarks or, or any comments that uh, you haven't had the opportunity to share with our audience. Um, I'll start with Steve and then uh, end with Matt. Steve? No, I just think this paper is is really great and illustrates that we have a long road ahead of really trying to figure out how to design this into the system. And so I think I think there's a lot of folks trying um, to figure out innovative ways to do this, and hopefully we, we learn about, you know, ways to make it happen. So, so next paper, Matt. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Um, yeah, I mean, I was, I was, I'm really thankful for Chess for, for being interested in this paper and publishing this paper. I kind of think it's funny the amount of research on smoking cessation in the context of lung cancer screening is, is, um, reflective of, of how much people are kind of caring about the lung cancer screening process and then leaving the smoking cessation behind. You just don't read a lot about it despite the fact that the health benefits would, uh, would be astronomical should, um, this be coupled correctly. So, um, really appreciate the opportunity to publish this and and, um, and talk to you guys today. I, I'm looking forward to uh, kind of the research that's going to be done or is being done in this area, things like the eight scale trials where we really do, uh, as Steve mentioned at multiple times, we need to figure out how to um, appropriately couple uh, smoking cessation with, with lung cancer screening. And really one of the points of this paper was just to show, hey, we can't just leave this as status quo. It's not just going to happen uh, because the government mandate says it should happen because the American College of Radiology says it should happen. Um, and, and so, um, you know, we really need to invest in time and resources into um, figuring out the best to, to uh, couple these processes. Yeah, I applaud both of you for taking the time on highlighting um, a topic that most people aren't commenting on, but it's really important, the importance of uh, linking smoking cessation with lung cancer screening. So a very big thank you to Drs. Triplett and Zelliot for a great conversation, and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is a chess podcast.